0: The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. And the deceitfulness of your own mind, how prone you are to wonder and leave the God you love. And you look back and you see the sheer grace. It is, as I said at the time, like you heard the gospel for the first time. And I couldn't just ignore it and move on. I wish I could have, but I couldn't leave it and move on. It was something that I couldn't hide. It was truth, and I loved it. And I could not abandon it now that I found it, nor could I cease to speak of it as I was asked. And I share this personal journey with you simply to say that my heart is no foreigner to grace. My mind is no skeptic of undeserved mercy. I bow to God's complete, unaided sovereignty in my salvation. And I share the same scar that all of you have really grabbed hold of the hope that is there in the statement by grace and by grace alone. So, what I want to ask us to do today is quite courageous, and that is to ask us to examine the scriptures, and in light of what we find in them, examine ourselves as the defenders of that sacred doctrine of grace alone, to see whether, in fact, We may have fenced in our understanding of grace using the pickets of the inherited narrative that it came to us in, and in doing so, are actually depriving the world of a fuller extent of the most beautiful of doctrines among humankind. So using this letter, um, beautiful letter that is written to the Ephesians, I want to frame this sermon around three very direct questions about the narrative of grace. Firstly, what is and has been the narrative of grace for the last 500 years? Secondly, what is what I am calling the original narrative of grace? And lastly, the most direct question, what difference does it make? Before we go into that point, however, let me briefly define again what I mean by narrative. Narratives are the underlying stories that are continually running in the background of a culture. They are the often unspoken yet accepted story that we accept about how the world works. The story we ultimately, ultimately use to explain the grand scheme of things. And they form the grid by which we as a culture interpret everything in life. So what is, to my first point, what is and has been the narrative of grace for the last 500 years? I think that a narrative in a culture or a time period can often be portrayed in its culture, in its novels, in its plays, in its songs, and particularly in its art. And I think that no one piece of art aids summarizing the the emphasis of the the medieval narrative, which is really the narrative that we, we've had for the last 500 years, it came to us from the medieval period, um, no one piece of art summarizes that, or the emphasis of it, visually, better than Michelangelo's The Last Judgment. We've got a picture up here, coming up, of The Last Judgment. I apologize, it's rather small, but the screens are the size they are. And I want you just to stare at that for a moment. Most, most of you may be familiar with it, maybe some of you haven't, but... You can see it's, a very, it's a very graphic, and as you get into the pieces in the, in the, of hell in the right-hand corner, and there's basically the saints are heading for heaven, and there there's those who are, who are being condemned to hell in that picture. It's very graphic. It's right there in the Sistine Chapel in very large. And uh, although the narrative conveyed in the Last Judgment by Michelangelo is meant to de- depict one specific climactic moment that the artist is at... Um, by the artist, it is, at its core, a good summary of the controlling narrative running behind the medieval period, how they ultimately saw the overall story of life. This, in their mind, really depicted the grand scheme of things. It is what I want to refer to moving forward as the moral wager narrative. To summarize the moral wager narrative, it's in a, in a nutshell, it's basically this. We have angered God by our first parents for their, their first moral disobedience and are now separated from him because of it. And we now owe him a wager of righteousness to attain a place with him in heaven after death or in the final judgment. That's a, there's many different aspects and, and nuances and, and much more detail. But in a summary, um, that's the primary story that's running behind that narrative. And the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all of the reformers, they were born into that narrative and into a time where the doctrines supported by that basic assumed narrative were being grossly abused, indulgences, purgatory, and a host of things, uh, abuses of the the people at that time in the name of the church. But they they all fit within that moral wager narrative. And the questions the reformers gave their lives to answer from Scripture were produced from that narrative. The answers they attained from Scripture were de- definitely in direct opposition to the corruption and abuses of their day, but at the core of their theological battle over the details, both sides nonetheless remained within that moral wager narrative. Meaning that grace alone was birthed within the narrative of the moral wager system. The doctrine of grace was placed in a story where the primary question was, what is required to enter heaven? Grace was placed within the context of Michelangelo's The Last Judgment. So when we speak of grace in that particular narrative, we instinctively reach for verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, because it gives us a clear and concise answer to the questions that the moral wager narrative was asking. How does one attain the righteousness that we owe to God? And how does one get into heaven and escape hell? Those are the pictures that are that are coming forth from the last the last day painting by Michelangelo. These are the questions of the narrative into which the term by grace alone was birthed. And it is a narrative that our text, Ephesians two, eight through nine, by itself fits into quite seamlessly. You have been saved by grace through faith. This doesn't happen on your own initiative. It is God's gift. It is not on the basis of works so that no one is able to boast. And the reformers drawing from this scripture here have given the most beautiful of answers to the questions. And my argument has nothing to say to the beauty of the answers to that question that the reformers came up with. But rather, my argument is, is the, um, my argument is against the targeting... Sorry, I'm reading my text wrong. <laughs> my argument is tar- targeting the controlling narrative of the medieval age that asks the specific questions that it did in the first place. For my argument is this, that although our text, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, can be used to answer the questions that the moral wager narrative asked, That the moral wager narrative, when we examine the letter, is not the actual narrative that Ephesians 2 8 through 9 sits within. So, what narrative does it sit within? And this is why this sermon is entitled, "What what, What It Is, The Original Narrative of Grace. Which brings me to the second question of the sermon What is the original narrative of grace? Now, to see that, we're going to have to do a very small but difficult task. We have to retrain ourselves to stop the habit that we have all formed as a culture over time of isolating the section or verses of the letter that answer the particular questions our inbuilt narrative is asking. And instead, we have to start the diligent practice of reading the letter as a whole to see the entire argument being made. So let's see where Paul goes with our text after our specific verses 8 through 9. Let's see what conclusions Paul comes to in the flow of the argument in which Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 sits. Now, we could start in chapter 1, to be honest with you, verse 1, and go all the way to chapter 21 of chapter 3, or even the end of the book, to be honest, to, to, to capture that final argument he makes. But I think that starting with our text in verses 8 and going just beyond it, into verses 12 will cover enough for us to start to get the point that I'm raising in the second question. So here I go. It's a bit of a longer text, but we all study Bibles, right? That's what we do. How has this come about? You have been saved by grace through faith. This doesn't happen on your own initiative. It is God's gift. It isn't on the basis of works so that no one is able to boast. This is the explanation. God has made us what we are. God has created us in King Jesus for the good works that we are that he prepared ahead of time as the road we must travel. So then, remember this exclamation mark. In human terms, that is in your flesh, you are Gentiles. You are the people whom the so-called circumcision refer to as the so-called uncircumcision. Circumcision of course being something done by human hands to human flesh. Well, once upon a time you were separated from the king. You were detached from the community of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants which contained the promise. There you were in the world with no hope and no God. What does all this talk of Jew and Gentile and gloomy talk of exclusion from Israel and that most uncomfortable topic of circumcision, what does all that have to do with being saved by grace? How does this part of the text fit into the narrative conveyed in Michelangelo's Last Judgment? The answer is, it doesn't. Because the, because the moral wager narrative conveyed in Michelangelo's Last Judgment was not the controlling narrative in Paul's world. Now, what is the narrative of Paul's world? I gave you a painting to summarize the medieval narrative. For Paul, I want to appeal to a story in the book of Acts so that we can see what the controlling narrative was of Paul's day. Here we go. Bear with me. A little bit more reading. I'll make this extra English. The next day, as they were on a journey and getting near the town, Peter went up onto the roof of the house to pray. It was around midday, He was hungry and asked for something to eat. While while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and a vessel like a great sail coming down toward the earth, suspended by its four corners. In this sail, there was every kind of four-footed creature, reptiles of the earth and the birds of the air. Then he heard a voice. "'Get up, Peter,' said the voice. "'Kill and eat.' "'Certainly not, Master,' said Peter." I have never eaten anything common or unclean. What God has made clean, said the voice, coming now for a second time, you must not regard as common. This all happened three times, and then suddenly the sail was whisked back into heaven. When Peter came to himself, he was puzzled as to what the vision he had seen was all about. Then suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared standing by the gate. They had been asking for Simon's house, inquiring if someone by the name of Simon, called Peter, was staying there. Peter was still pondering the vision when the Spirit spoke to him. Look, said the Spirit, there are three men searching for you. It's all right. Get up, go down, and go with them. Don't be prejudiced. I have sent them. To speed it up a bit, he goes along with them, and the next scene is Peter in the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion a Gentile. So they talked together, and Peter came in and found lots of people assembled. You must know, he said to them, that it is forbidden for a Jewish man to mix with or visit a Gentile. But God showed me that I should call nobody common or unclean. So I came when I was asked, and I raised no objections. Do tell me then the reason why you have sent for me. What I want you to pick up in this story is the controlling narrative of the Jewish people, of Israel. Peter needs a vision from heaven three times just so he can get up and go with Gentiles to a Gentile home. And note what Gentiles, we, us in this room, are referred to. The common and the unclean. The unclean is a word in Israel reserved, as far as I can tell from Scripture, only for us and lepers. And more importantly, note that the voice from heaven does not say, how dare you call a fellow man a common, unclean, you prideful, legalistic racist. Rather, he says, what God has made clean, you must not regard as common. God chose the vision. God chose the imagery. God chose the language. Meaning, Grace for us, for us Gentiles, for us who were called the common and unclean, does not start on this blank canvas of the moral wager system of, you sinned, Christ died to make a way. Paul is telling us strongly and with tears, I expect, that we were, as Gentiles, outside of the means of grace. We were, as he says in Ephesians, separated from the king, detached from the community of Israel, foreigners to the covenants which contain the promise, in the world with no hope and no God. The original narrative of grace is not one of universality that we can just speak of in general terms, that we can all come to with equality. We cannot start our story of grace with Genesis 1. Introduce sin, separation from God, and then jump to a non contextualized Jesus making a way to salvation from sin and reconciliation with God and final entrance into heaven. For in this oversimplified creed like presentation, we leave out the story and the absolute understanding of Israel as the nation that he called out among all the nations of the earth, those he made his inheritance the people he formed from Abraham as his exclusive covenant people. You can hear clearly in this letter to the Ephesians that Paul's controlling narrative splits the world into just two camps, the covenant people of God, the Jews, and then the lost Gentile nations who are alienated from that covenant and segregated from entering the presence of God. And I submit to you that that morbid and hopeless state is the original narrative within which grace sits. So I have presented the narrative that we inherited from the medieval period, and I have presented the original narrative that I'm saying it sits in, that grace sits within. And putting those two together brings me to the final and most important point in the sermon. What difference does it make which one we embrace? I believe if our hearts have been able to hear the message so far, if they have been tugged at all to grasp the truth that I'm trying to convey, then the remaining section of the letter to Ephesians answers this final question by itself. So to pick up where I left off in the letter in the passage of Ephesians after verse 12, listen to just a little bit more. But now, Paul says, contrasting it to what he's just, the morbid state he left us in. But now, in King Jesus, you have been brought near in the King's blood. Yes, you who used to be a long way away. He is our peace, you see. He has made the two to be one. He has pulled down the barrier, the dividing wall that turns us into enemies of each other. He has done this in his flesh by abolishing the law with its commands and its instructions the point of doing all this was to create in him one new human being out of the two so making peace god was reconciling both of us to himself in a single body through the cross by killing the enmity in him so the messiah came and gave the good news peace had come peace that is for those who were a long way away and peace too For those who are close at hand. Through him, you see, we both have access to the Father in one spirit. This is the result. You are no longer foreigners or strangers. No, you are fellow citizens with God's holy people. You are members of God's household. And later in chapter three, he continues just a little bit more. The secret is this. That through the gospel, the Gentiles are to share Israel's inheritance. They are to become fellow members of the body along with them and fellow sharers of the promise in the Messiah, King Jesus. This is the gospel that I was appointed to serve in line with the free gift of God's grace that was given to me. What difference does the original narrative for grace make? Well, to be honest, the full answer to this is similar, I'm sure, to what Luther felt as he walked to nail his 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door. I don't think he could see all the ramifications of his action. I don't think he knew all of the things that would change if people actually embraced what he was bringing attention to. But he saw what was being presented was not aligning with what he saw in Scripture, and that's all he knew. Sola Scriptura. Here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. However, summarizing the section of Scripture I just read, I'll take a stab at it. At least one difference I truly believe it would make if we embraced the original narrative of grace. So here it is. I think that the church and the gospel would be the vessel that would make the greatest stride to end ethnic and socioeconomic segregation in every nation that it was preached. And this is not an epiphany. This is not some modern-day application of the gospel to deal with current affairs. This is not what I say because I'm darker than most people in here and it's my time to preach. No, it leaps right out of the gospel of grace when grace is allowed to, to be in its original narrative. Listen to the words that were listen to the listen to the key phrases that are just shining out of Ephesians. He is our peace. You see, He has made the two to be one. He has pulled down the barrier, the dividing wall that turns us into enemies of each other. He has done in his, this in His flesh by abolishing the law with its commands and instructions. And to look a little deeper than that, let me just pull out even more that's coming from those passages. The law and its commands and instructions, which he refers to, are the ceremonial laws given to make distinctions that separated Jew from Gentile by ceremonial practice. The hands washing, the food, all the things that a Jew could do that kept him and kept a Gentile unclean. They were were to segregate people. That was what the law was, and that's what he is referring to, who has been abolished. The dividing wall when he mentions, was the wall in the temple used to segregate the court of the Gentiles from the inner temple, upon which most of them had a stone engraved that said any Gentile that passes this point, this wall, will be killed upon, uh, upon passing, upon penalty of death. Listen to the language that the gospel is yelling out to us. I want to say that we have focused so long under the wrong moral wage and narrative that we inherited and have thus just seen Jews and the story of Judaism and all this language of Jew and Gentile as some example of the Jews trying to pay the moral debt by moral works against the Christians embracing the free grace devoid of moral work. And because of that, I think we have missed the real significance of this ending of segregation grace. In this beautiful letter, And it brings me to tears. What brings me to tears is that the fact that history was crying out for it. And the world is again now and has always been in need of this great doctrine of grace, but in the right narrative. For who should be able to relate to the segregated, the foreigner, the refugee more than us? we, those once called the common and unclean, we who were not allowed into the temple in the presence of God, we who were, who were seen by the Jews as lesser, as left without God, without hope. But instead, after receiving such grace, we, the common and unclean in the West, have spent the last 100, 500 years merely fighting between ourselves over who was more common and unclean. When we see grace in this original narrative, we see the works of the law being the ceremonial laws that keep the Jews distinct from the Gentile and the dividing wall in the temple. We see that those things less resemble the self-righteous versus grace alone argument that we have focused on since the Reformation and more accurately resemble the white and black drinking fountains of the Jim Crow laws of the early 19th century. We memorized, you have been saved by grace through faith in Sunday school, yet we were as a nation with a prominently Christian worldview, clueless to have a biblical answer to ethnic-based segregation in public schools. We understood grace enough to get to heaven but we had not gone far enough with it to understand its far-reaching depth to solve our time's most pressing issues. And I feel as much as it's nice to say when a preacher gets on the pulpit and says that he sees he's been to a multi-ethnic or a language, uh, you know, a multi-language gathering that this is how I imagine heaven to be. Although I understand what's said by that, there is this ultimately rebuke in the wind coming. For we were instructed to be that very thing now. We were not to simply leave that for heaven. The very foundation of the church, according to Ephesians, was that we as the church would make that statement now, since the first century, and not leave it as an excuse for something that will be fixed in heaven. The grace in the original narrative had a story much deeper and far-reaching than Michelangelo's The Last Judgment. It was more than one's personal, eternal salvation and rescue from hell. Paul's narrative, as he takes the whole argument at the end of chapter three, was that the forming of this new Jew and Gentile humanity with all its very with its very formation was to speak to the principalities and powers. This grace alone formed multi-ethnic, multi-social class was to be a sign resounding in the world, that new creation had indeed begun and that Jesus had now taken his position as king of the world. Unity is not something we should strive to do if we have time left after making sure everyone is going to heaven. It is rather central to our vocation of proclaiming the sovereignty of Jesus in the world. This is what Paul is arguing in Ephesians. This is the original narrative that grace sits in. So to bring this to an end, this is where we stand. We must be princi- We must be true to the principles of the reformers. We must do what Luther would have done if he had saw this today. We must put our inherited narrative aside in light of the authority of Scripture, because it's what the reformers did and that what they would do now, sola scriptura, Scripture alone and we must embrace the calling and the responsibility of living in the original narrative of grace. We inherited the limited narrative of Michelangelo's The Last Judgment, and there's nothing we can do about that. But we can, and we must, and will let us lead in the reformation of that. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And I said this earlier, but I think... I will have never uh, had a personally take a commu- taken a communion as more meaningful than this communion that if I can truly understand the context of this message today. this meal was first given in the midst of the Passover meal. A meal, and the Passover was a celebration in, a, in, in the narrative that, of that Passover meal. There was indeed a celebration. Of redemption, but that redemption was at this cost that the firstborn of every Egyptian died, and the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites who had been given a sacrificial lamb, a sacrifice that there would then be a meal. However, that knowledge belonged to those Jews alone. We as Gentiles were not given that information. We were in line with the Egyptians. We were separated from that. We were detached from the community of Israel, foreigners to the covenants, which contained the promise. We were, as Ephesians says, in the world with no hope and no God. Yet, in the first century, right in the middle of that exclusively Jewish sacramental meal, part of Israel's exclusive narrative, Jesus institutes a new meal. He, as the representative of Israel, as its Messiah, in the middle of that Passover meal, takes bread and says, this is my body that is given for you, and then takes wine in a cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And he never says anything in that passage about Gentiles or about us but I have to believe because of what happened subsequently later that as he sits there with a small group of only Jewish people, that he was then at that point thinking about all of us and all the different ethnicities, all the different people groups, all the different classes of people that would one day come and eat one single meal as one single people. And here we are now and it makes me love communion. It makes me more than ever, desire that this meal right here is what the world needs. It is a meal that we were once excluded from, but now are welcome to. We partake of this meal as equals by His blood. Here we are, those who are made to drink from a different fountain, drinking from the same cup. Here we are, not by ethnic right, not by social status, not by religious distinctions, but by grace, and grace alone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at